Welcome to Head Change, the podcast all about positive personal growth and intentional living at the intersection of culture and faith. The goal, to help you live life like never before. And now, your host, author, speaker, and hero award-winning humanitarian, James L. Clark. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode number 0002. Did I say that right? 0002, episode number two. It is episode number two of Head Change, and today I'm really excited because we're going to be talking a little bit about the dichotomous and the trichotomous view of man, as well as overcoming fear, which is a real important topic to my heart because I think fear is one of the most dangerous emotions out there when it's not being used to protect you. But before we go into that, today's quote is, everything you want is on the other side of fear. That's Jack Canfield. And you can read his books. He's the co-author of uh, Chicken Soup for the Soul and its various derivatives. Today's words of the day, I'm going to try to do two each time. The first is slugabed. Slugabed is formed by using the word slug, meaning to be slow, and the rare adverb abed, meaning in bed. You don't want to be a slugabed, somebody who is lazy and doesn't get out of bed at the normal time you would think everybody would get out of bed. And the second word is panglossian which means characterized by or given to extreme optimism, especially in the face of unrivaled hardship or adversity. And that is a great word to put into use on a regular basis. You don't want to be a slug abed, but you do want to be a Panglossian. Remember, there's no doubt about it, ladies and gentlemen, that having a good vocabulary is one of the keys to success. The more you understand what people are talking about, the greater impact it can have on your own ability to articulate and to consider and to rationalize and to grow and to learn. So make sure that you try to take these two words that I've given you and put them into use somehow today. I don't know how it's going to come up, but it'll be interesting. In fact, I'd love to hear from you about how you might have included into a conversation, perhaps at work or university or even at home. Just tell me, tweet me or send me an email to podcast at jameslclark.com and I may include it in a future episode. <laughs> All right, let's move on to the next section, which is the book of the week. To me, what book you have on your bookshelf is really an indicator of who you are and who you're becoming. At a bare minimum, if you focus on something, you're going to become that thing. So if you focus on the negative, you will become a negative pessimistic person. If you focus on optimism, you will become an optimist. That's just the nature of the beast. If you want to become a mechanical engineer, you don't study biology. Okay. If you want to become a doctor, you don't study mechanical engineering. What you do is you focus on the things you want to become. Even Paul said that in the new Testament, the things you focus on are the things you become. It's just the nature of the beast and pretty much every philosophy and religion out there suggests that to be true. Which is pretty much why every single time that I do a podcast, I'm going to try to provide you some aspect of a vocabulary just to get your brain thinking about it. And I'm going to discuss with you at least once or twice every couple podcasts, a book that I'm currently reading or one that I would like to highly recommend based on reviews and information that I've heard from others. This week, I'm reading Love Does by Bob Goff. Now, I'm embarrassed to say that I didn't know a lot about Bob before I got this book. In fact, I was actually reading somebody else's Twitter feed, uh, Pastor Craig Groeschel out of Oklahoma City. He used to be my pastor when I lived there. And Craig has got a new book out. So I was really excited to see what he was going to be putting out next. And I was looking and I clicked on one link that took me to another link that ended up taking to me another link. And eventually I landed on information about Bob and his book, Love Does. And so I read a little bit about it. And as I read more, 
I was really impressed, not with just Bob as a person and as a person of faith who acts upon that faith, but more importantly, the central theme to what he was sharing with his readers and his followers on Twitter and through his blog posts and through his speaking engagements is really about telling people that love is not just an emotion, but love is about taking action and having a direct impact on the people around you and changing lives. It's really a central theme in my life too. So there's a bit of a kindred spirit feeling there. And I reached out to Bob and was able to uh, contact him and his assistant. And hopefully we'll have him on this podcast in due course. So fingers crossed. I know he's extremely busy all the way into 2016. So we'll see whether or not we can make that happen. But uh, Lord willing, if uh, that meeting is meant to take place, then we'll get him on head change and we'll be able to share information directly from him to our listeners I want to recommend the book to you. I'm only in chapter two. I'm, I'm a little bit behind schedule considering that it was published by Thomas Nelson in 2012. Ah, I wish I'd have known about it sooner. I'm really enjoying it. And as I get through it, I'll talk to you a little bit more about it in a follow-up or subsequent podcast. That all said, I'll also put information about Bob and his organization on our blog and on the podcast notes so that you can take a look there, as well as links to purchase the book at Amazon.com, which, as you can appreciate, we get a little bit of money for as an affiliate link. And I'd appreciate it if you do that because we can turn around and take that money and invest it back into all of the positive programming that we're trying to develop for you. You can also follow Bob at, at Bob Goff, and that's B-O-B-G-O-F-F. And if you wouldn't mind, if you're not already following me, it's at James L. Clark. All right, let's now get into the main content of episode two. And it starts with talking about the dichotomous and the trichotomous view of what a human being is. Now, what does that mean? Well, the traditional view of what a human being is, is pretty much that we have an earth suit. That is, we have a body or a vessel that we reside in. And we have a psyche, right? The, the Greek root that gives us psychology. And it's central to Plato and Socrates and many other philosophers from the beginning of time that sort of validates where the human being comes from. Now, the, that's the dichotomous view. The trichotomous view is that we are a body, a soul, and a spirit. And that's going to depend on your religious perspective or your spiritual perspective of whether or not a spirit even exists. Some people say that we have a body and a spirit, although I think that that's a little weird way to de define it. I think there's something more supernatural. It's a little bit harder to define, and therefore the psyche, which can be defined, at least in the soft sciences, psychology and sociology and so forth, where we can actually study the mind, the consciousness, the will, the emotions, we can't really study the spirit per se. And some like to say that it's like a light switch. It's either on to the creator or it's off to the creator, whatever that happens to be. I have my own perspectives and I'll share that in due course, but ultimately it's up to you what you believe. And it, it isn't my goal to try to convert you or convince you that you need to think in my way. I just want to share with you some ideas and then let you make informed decisions for yourself because that's what freedom is all about. Anything less than that is slavery. So the dichotomous view essentially is this that your earth suit and your soul combine and your soul can be split into three component parts too, which is interesting because it's trichotomous by its very nature. You have your thinker or your mind, your will, which is your decision maker and your emotions or your feeler. I learned a lot about the trichotomous view or this particular view of psychology from a former psychology professor named Dr. Bill Gillum, who wrote a book called Lifetime Guarantee that I read what must have been probably 20 years ago or so. And then I ended up becoming friends with Bill and his wife, Annabelle, and their son, Preston, and his wife. 
And that friendship carried on for many years until we lost both Bill and Annabelle several years back. Uh, true loss to not only those of us who knew him, but to the people that they influenced uh, on, on a worldwide basis. I'll include details about that book in the notes for the podcast as well, just for the sake of being thorough. And again, that will be an affiliate link. So it's up to you whether or not you link onto that and use it or you go and search it yourself. Either way, it's really important. I think you add it to your list if you really want to have a clear or better understanding of how we function in both the dichotomous and trichotomous views as human beings. To get back to the point, the psyche, the mind, will, and emotions, the soul, if you will, they're on, I guess you could put it on this arbitrary scale of zero to 10 with zero being average and 10 being you're breaking the circuit breakers. Okay. That you're just going off the rails. Now your thinker is all about good information in good information out garbage in garbage out. Okay. It processes information analytically. And then the emotion side of the house is all about your feeler, right? Intuition, the way your emotions impact you. And that could be fear or anger or inhibition or whatever. Any emotion you want, you can plug into that scale again from zero to 10. One of my favorite sayings is that your emotions are seldom indicative of the truth. In other words, we tend to feel a lot of things that aren't always right. Fear's the classic example of that. I mean, if there's one thing one emotion that holds back millions of people each year or each day from becoming the people they want to become of, of reaching the level of success that they want to reach. It has to be fear. Anybody who's experienced any appreciable level of success knows that to get there, regardless of what it is, regardless of your occupation, regardless of the goal, there has to be a measure of risk taking. And it's vital because you can't get to where you want to get from where you are without taking some measure of risk. And unfortunately, people can be very risk adverse. Now, I'm not suggesting you take risks that are dangerous per se, but what I am saying is that you have to be willing to overcome fear that prevents you from taking risks, because if you don't, you can never get where you want to get. Now, it's important to point out that fear is absolutely normal. I mean, on one side of the coin, you have the fight or flight syndrome, right? It protects you from danger. And on the other side, you have the fear that prevents you from growth. And that could be the false evidence appearing real concept. I've heard that fear, F-E-A-R, has two particular meanings. I'm going to use three of them. One is forget everything and run, which is the fight or flight. And the second is face everything and rise or face everything and rise to the challenge. And three, false evidence appearing real. Now, the false evidence appearing real side is making you think something's going to happen when you have no evidence to support it. And that is directly related to either one or two. So either you're going to forget it and run, or you're going to face it in stride and face it and rise to the challenge. Les Brown said, too many of us are not living our dreams because we're living our fears. And that's rather apropos when you look at this particular topic. However, let's look at the fight or flight syndrome first that has been hardwired into us since caveman days. Now, that is a chemical response. Your body will perceive danger through your eyes, through your ears, through other senses, and it will send those signals to your brain. And your brain will, in many respects, be hijacked and programming will automatically come out. I've taught martial arts for a long time, and I tell people that fear is a very valuable thing. It will keep you safe. There's a great book out there by Gavin DeBecker called The Gift of Fear. I could highly recommend it as well, in addition to the ones that I've already suggested. 
When I get new students, one of the first things I teach them is the color code of awareness. If you're not familiar with it, go look it up and read a little bit more about it in depth. But the short version of it is this. The colors are essentially white, yellow, orange, red, and black. The latter color black was developed later on by the U.S. Marine Corps. And what that means is this. Think about white noise. If you're familiar with white noise, you can just go to sleep, right? You just zone out and you have no idea what's going on. Well, if you're walking down the street and you're in what's called condition white, you're going to be completely unaware of your circumstances. A great example of somebody in condition white is someone who's texting and looking at their phone and not paying attention to their surroundings at all. They couldn't see any danger in front of them until it literally hits them. If you've ever driven a car and you've woke up, so to speak, just before your turnoff or you've passed the place you were supposed to get off and you literally can't remember why, like when, when did that happen? Are you listening to the radio or whatever? That's condition white. You're completely zoned out and have no idea what's going on around you. And the only place that condition white is remotely acceptable is when you're in your home behind an alarm with the door locked with a dog around you and perhaps even a firearm. That's the only time when condition white is remotely acceptable. Any other time, and it's potentially dangerous to you, your family, and other loved ones. The next is condition yellow. And condition yellow is about putting your head up, pulling your shoulders back, and paying attention. I never leave the home without going into condition yellow. In other words, I'm paying attention. I'm looking for things. Now, amber or yellow is a bright color, and we use it to get people's attention, right? So that's the whole thing. Remember that yellow stands for attention. Pay attention. That leads you into condition orange. Because you're paying attention, you see potential threats. You see the car swerving down the highway, which could be a drunk driver that could hurt you and your family, or the guy that looks like he might be a little bit of trouble. He's wearing a hoodie, he's got his hands in his pocket, and he seems to be following you down the road. That tells you that is a potential threat, and you should be ready to do whatever it takes to keep yourself safe now. Condition red is when that threat turns into a real danger, when you actually have to put into action some kind of measure that you've already prepared in advance to be able to escape or evade or counterattack. And condition black is pretty much the opposite of condition white. Things got so bad, you were so overwhelmed that you literally have no idea what happened. The Marine Corps added that later on after they tried to have discussions with people after a major combat event. They wanted to get a report, an after action report, if you will. And the individuals that were in the middle of the fight couldn't articulate what took place. They couldn't really tell them what happened. That's how Condition Black came about. And it really does help explain on that spectrum of awareness what can take place if you're not properly trained and you're not fully cognizant, if you're not fully involved and fully present in the middle of an attack. So the color code of awareness really helps us understand that process of being aware and how that directly relates to fear because the fight or flight syndrome can again protect us. It can have a direct impact on our safety. And that fight or flight syndrome will activate one of two main ways. It's either going to activate because you're consciously present, involved in the situation, and your brain is collecting all the data, and it activates the fight or flight syndrome and dumps that adrenaline into your body, and you're aware of it, and you're capable of handling it so that you can use that chemical to your advantage, or you're not paying attention. And in many respects, you're hijacked, and it becomes reactionary, and it activates emotions in addition to the fight or flight syndrome. And then you're more likely to misunderstand it and run from it. When I'm training new students, one of the things that I love to do, we've been doing it for many years, it's uh, now probably approaching 25 years at this point, we would put new students in the middle of the ring, so to speak, and we'd surround them, all the instructors, all the students, and we'd push them and shove them and yell at them and scream at them and really get in their face 
and try to cause that dump, that adrenaline to hit their body. Because most people, they don't understand it. They don't experience it. So they're not sure what it is. And often it's misunderstood as fear. Well, it's not fear. It's just a chemical. I mean, if you've ever seen people yelling at each other and they're shaking really bad, some people are like, oh, that guy's totally afraid. Actually, that doesn't mean he's afraid or she's afraid. It just means that their body has had that chemical reaction. And that chemical stays in the body for, you know, a good 15 minutes before it dissipates. And so you shake naturally. But that can be your friend. That chemical is actually a really good thing if you understand how to control it, if you understand how to use it to your advantage. So we deliberately cause that dump because we want our students to early on experience it in a controlled environment that allows them to learn how to properly handle it so that in the event of a real fight, a real conflict, they're able to turn it to their advantage. That's a real awesome thing to do. Success, like fighting. Success like boxing, success like mixed martial arts, success like any aspect of conflict is a learnable skill. It's something that you can learn. It's something that you can manifest in your own life. It's something you can apply to your own life. And these skills will allow you to succeed in areas that you never dreamed possible. Overcoming fear, both physically in the middle of conflict and emotionally in terms of how it holds you back from becoming the best person you can be are things you can learn to do. So let me give you a really good example of how fear can hold you back. And I'm going to use somebody from my own family. My grandmother, a very important person to me before she passed away, still her memory, an important aspect of who I am. She was one of the most stable people in my life. My family has this history of drama. And I'm not talking about drama on the stage or drama on television. I'm talking about it always seems to be a problem. No matter what it is, it's always a problem with them. It's always about them and how people have treated them and how the world owes them this or owes them that. And where there is a lack of drama, trust me when I tell you this, they will find drama to insert into it and it makes everybody around them miserable. I'm sure you can identify with that. I'm sure there have been people who have crossed your path, if not people who are currently in your life right now that are just like that, who always seem to have drama. I suggest getting away from anything like that. That doesn't mean you can't have a relationship, but what you do is you extricate yourself away from anything that's negative like that that is going to drag you down because that will have a constant negative Chinese water torture drip, drip, drip effect on your personality and who you are. So I avoid anybody like that. And if that happens to mean a family member, then unfortunately that's the reality of the situation. I love them. I still treat them with respect. I just don't necessarily associate with them on a regular basis because I don't want to be a part of that. And I don't want that crawling into my life. That can be like an emotional vampire and it just sucks and drains the life right out of you. So some years ago, I got a phone call that my grandmother wasn't well. And as you do, if you have the capability, you go to be with that person. When I got there, she was on a respirator. So the machine was breathing for and she was in and out of consciousness. It's a real sad thing to experience because she was a shadow of her former self. She was really cold and you could tell that she wasn't going to make it through the night. And my grandmother had always told me that she wanted to visit Europe. Our family on one side largely hails from Scotland, England and Ireland. I was lucky enough to be able to live in the UK. I mean, in fact, right now I'm in Scotland on an island doing this podcast. I did my postgraduate work in Scotland and England. I spent time in Ireland. So I'm very blessed to have been able to do those things that I wanted to do early on and decided to do. But my whole life, my grandmother had been telling me she wanted to visit and yet she never did. So here she is laying on her deathbed and she hadn't ever accomplished that goal. She had never lived that dream. And there's something just really sad about that type of circumstance. I say all the time, 
that nobody, as they're passing away, as they take their last breath, like my grandmother did, wishes that they had just spent a few more hours working or put just a few more dollars in their bank account. No, people regret that they didn't spend time with the people they loved doing the things they always wanted to do. My grandmother passes away. I'm holding her hand. I'm whispering into her ear how much I love her and how much she means to me, and I'm praying with her. And it occurs to me, what a sad loss, man. That opportunity, it's just gone. It's gone. To go back to the topic of drama in my family, suddenly her death then became about everybody else. (laughs) Ultimately, though, somebody has to step up the plate and take responsibility because those realities don't go away just because you're grieving. So I arranged to have my grandmother taken to the funeral home. And then my grandfather went down with me the next day and we picked out her coffin. We picked out her clothing that she was going to be buried in and the jewelry that she was going to be buried in. I wrote the obituary and sent that into the newspaper. I applied for a death certificate and we began going through her paperwork and just preparing for the reality that my grandfather was now going to be on his own. As long as I can remember, my grandmother lived in a trailer home. When I was young, it was a single wide and then later on she upgraded to a double wide. But she lived in the same trailer park my entire life. I don't remember ever seeing her in a job, though I had heard that she had jobs before I came along. My grandfather worked really, really hard. He was always at work. Now, if you think about the time period that my grandmother grew up, in fact, she went to California with her family during the Dust Bowl. So she grew up with poverty and she grew up during the, she grew up during the Depression and World War II. So my grandmother was always worried about not having any means, not having any money, not being able to take care of her family. That always controlled her. The fear of what might happen prevented her from doing really anything. She always wanted to travel, but the furthest she ever went was Mexico and Canada. Now, as if it weren't already sad enough that she didn't get to do those things, that she didn't get to travel to Europe, here's where it really got to me. So in her closet, she always had this little 1960s pastel-colored overnight case, and it had one of those combination locks on the front, you know, the four-position combination locks. They're dials. And so like, for example, you could go zero, 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 and then you click the button. And if that was the right combination, it would spring open and you would be able to see what was inside. Now, my entire life seeing this in the closet, I never once saw inside of it. I didn't know what she kept in there. After she passed away, my grandfather said, well, we need to go through it and see what's in there. But he didn't know the combination. So I sat there and put in zero, 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 click, nothing. Zero, 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 one, click, nothing. Zero, 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 two click nothing. And this went on and on until I reached 8,473. And then all of a sudden it sprang open. And in this weird sense of excitement and also disappointment, I opened it up and I looked inside. And here's what I found. I found a pistol and wads of neatly organized cash. Now they weren't large bills. It wasn't like hundreds or fifties or twenties or tens or not even fives. It was all ones. Ones, lots and lots and lots of ones. In fact, there was over $10,000 in ones neatly stored, well-organized in this overnight case. There was also a coin collection, some letters that I had written her from years ago when I was first in the military and I was overseas on a deployment and I sent her letters about what was going on and she kept those as well as some birth certificates and other things that you might want to keep safe. Now that money that was in there You know, I don't know what the purpose of it being in there was. We don't know where it came from, so we assume she just saved for decades, literally, and put that money in there. Perhaps, you know, just to take care of things in case there was ever a time when there was no money. And I remember seeing it and thinking to myself, man, she could have actually went to Europe if she wanted to. I mean, what does it take to go to Europe? You need a passport and you need some cash, right? Whatever the cost of a plane ticket is, you save up, 
you get your passport and you make a date of it and you go. Worst case scenario, you have to stay in a hotel or a campground or you have to figure out another place to stay. Maybe you meet somebody on Facebook. But if you really want to go to Europe and you don't have a fear of flying that prevents you from getting on the plane, the only difference between those of us who come to Europe and those of us who want to go to Europe is choice, is an act of the volition, an act of your will. And she never chose to, even though she had the money and capability to do it if she really wanted. Now, based on what I've said so far about my grandmother's background and the fact that she lived in a trailer, you might be thinking, well, maybe she didn't have a lot of money. You know, maybe that was just her fear from the depression and growing up poor. She just wanted to keep it safe. And that was that rainy day money. Well, here's where it gets even more interesting. Inside of that case was also a savings account passbook. Now, if you don't know what a bank passbook is, go look it up online. Go Google it. It's like the uh, rotary phone of the telephone industry. You won't believe this, but my grandmother had almost 100,000 US dollars saved up. I read that and I just, my heart sank. My heart just sank for her. It wasn't that she didn't have the money. She did have the money. In fact, in her 70s, when she passed away, she could have pretty much done anything she wanted to do. She could have traveled anywhere. She could even traveled frugally anywhere. And I don't want that to happen to you. I don't want that to happen to anybody. Man, you only have one chance. And my grandmother just didn't do it because she let fear control her decision making. Now, this is what's going to make Head Change as a podcast and a learning opportunity different than all the other podcasts out there. I don't want to just talk about theory because theory won't help you move forward in a positive way. This podcast is all about personal growth, which means I have an obligation that once I've talked to you about the theory and the concepts to also try to help you find ways to actually develop skills to move forward. But before we do that and we get into the skills side of this podcast, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Head Change with James L. Clark. We'll be right back after this short break. You don't want to miss it. Want to be inspired? Look out for James's new book, Boots on the Ground in Haiti. It's an emotionally moving first-person account of people just like you leaving their lives and families behind to help the victims of the 2010 earthquake in Haiti that leveled parts of the small island nation and killed more than 300,000 people in the blink of an eye. Gandhi said if you want to find yourself, lose yourself in the service of others. You'll lose yourself in the pages of this book and the real-life stories it shares. All right, welcome back to the second half of Head Change. Let's get into the skills side of it now. Anyone who has ever studied personal performance or success knows that there's one thing you must do if you want to turn your dreams into reality. And that is you need to sit down and write down all of the things that you want to do. Everything you want to accomplish, everything you want to experience, every place you want to visit, anything you want to taste or see, you have to put pen to paper and write it down. I'm not talking about using your phone. I'm not talking about an iPad or a computer. Sit down with a pen and a piece of paper and write as if you had all the resources in the world to do anything that comes to mind, no matter how crazy, no matter how outlandish, no matter what anybody else says, this is between you and you alone. And I want you to do it today. If you've not already done it, do it today, my friend. No excuses. Don't procrastinate. Take the time. All you have to do is start with just a small list. Your list will grow, I promise you. I started out with 242 things on my list when I did it. I've accomplished all of them and then some. That was 20 plus years ago. You need to do it too if you've not already done it. And I need you to do it for me today. 
In fact, if you want to right now, just pause this and come back to it later. Don't even keep listening. Ignore me right now. In fact, as I'm talking, you should be hitting the pause button and going back to that. Finish that list or at least get that list started. Get a good 10, 15, hundred things on it and then come back and finish this podcast. Now, if you don't want to and you want to keep listening, that's fine too, but just don't put it off until tomorrow. Do it today, do it tonight, do it at some point very, very, very soon so you're not ignoring this important step because this is the first step to identifying the things that you want to do. It's the first step to identifying the things that you don't have that you wished you had. And that is the way you start to move forward in a positive way. It's a really exciting step. And if you do it because of this podcast, let me know. Send me a tweet or email me at podcast at jameslclark.com and I might even put it on the podcast and discuss it. Step two. All right, now assuming that you have that list or at least a portion of that list, here's the next thing I need you to do. I know you're going to be like, oh my gosh, it's just so much work. But that's the point. If you want to get ahead in life, if you want to enjoy success and personal growth, you have to do these things. You can't ignore them. The most successful people in the world at whatever they're successful at are there because they're disciplined. It's one of the most important character attributes for people to reach their goals. Discipline. Lots and lots of discipline. So in step two, here's what I want you to do. No matter how large your list is, it could have 10 things, 20 things, 100 things. It could have 500 things. I want you to narrow down the top of the list. Not what you've wrote down first, but what I want you to do is look over the entire list, assuming that you wrote it as if you had no obstacles at all, nothing to keep you from accomplishing them, nothing to keep you from doing them. I want you to take the top things, the most important things, and I want you to start a new list. I want you to write at the top of that list the most important things on my list. And I want you to write down 5, 10, 15, or even 20 of them. As soon as you've done that, let's do step three. Step three. All right, this is where it gets really exciting. I want you to take this new list, this new priorities list that you've been developing, and I want you to pick one thing. I want you to ask yourself, honestly, why have you not accomplished this one thing? What's the obstacle that's been in the way? In my experience, it's almost always you. It's almost always that you're the biggest obstacle that has got in your own way from being able to accomplish or achieve that given result. It could have been that you've tried and you failed or you didn't get the result that you wanted. It could be that you don't have the money in the bank right now. It could be a variety of other things that may contribute to it. But ultimately, you're the reason that you've not accomplished that particular goal. And that's not an accusation. That's not me attacking you. That's me trying to get you to realize that you're in control. You're the one that's responsible 100% of the time. That your circumstances and others around you have absolutely no bearing and no power in your life except for that which you give them. When I realized that, when I had that head change, when that epiphany came into my life, it empowered me and it changed me. And I started to accomplish the things in my life that I wanted to accomplish. I started to do the things that mattered to me without worrying about the consequences, without worrying about failure or anything like that. And in almost all cases, I was able to narrow it down to some kind of fear, a fear of failure, a fear that maybe I'd upset somebody, a fear that maybe I wouldn't be able to pay for it or pay the bills. Almost every single time it came down to some false evidence appearing real. So ask yourself, what fear is involved in your situation? What kind of fear is holding you back? Is it fear of the unknown? Is it a fear of failure? Is it a fear that your significant other won't support you? 
Is it a fear that if you quit your job and start that new company, that you'll go flat broke and you'll be bankrupt? What is it that's keeping you from doing that thing? Now, it's important to point out that this just isn't about the emotion of fear as in I'm afraid, but it's also about the concept of false evidence appearing real. I mean, listen, when you make decisions that change your life, there are consequences, both good and bad. Hopefully, the majority of them will be good. So you might be asking yourself, what about my family? What about my friends? What about my children? The reality is you've got to follow your heart. You don't want to go through life wishing you had done something and then you never did. You might be thinking that when you go out to try to do something new that you don't actually know how, so you get concerned that, well, I don't really know how. How am I going to make that a reality? This can be particularly difficult if you are trying to do something that requires technical expertise that you don't yet have. But like all things in life, you can learn these things. At the end of the day, there are plenty of free tutorials online, guides, ebooks. You can find mentors. If you really want to do something, don't let the fear of not knowing how to do it keep you from being able to do it. I've been there myself when I didn't know how to do something and I was a little afraid of trying to do it. And I overcame that and I decided I was going to go learn how. Basically what happened was I had a product I wanted to put on the market. I'd never done that before. So I contacted a company to have them make a prototype and that cost a lot of money. And then the prototype wasn't really what I wanted. So I couldn't actually go into production. So all this money had been wasted and this time and this effort. And then I found out if I take that same amount of money and I invested in technical school, I could learn how to make prototypes myself. So what I did is I went to machine school. I learned how to use a lathe better. I learned how to use a milling machine better. I learned how to use grinders and drill presses and weld. All the things that I had done in high school about 20 years before that. But this time I took it really serious. And I went to school from 7 in the morning until about 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And I did that for about 6 months solid until I got the knowledge that I needed to be able to do the things I wanted to do on my own. I can't remember where I heard this, but somebody had said, if I told you that I was going to give you $1 million right now to invest any way you want in any type of business that you'd like to invest in, and I'll give it to you within 24 hours, but in 24 hours, you must have a business account. You have to have a corporation started. You're going to have to learn how to do a profit and loss report and a few other minor things that I required of you before I'd cut the check and you had 24 hours to do it. I guarantee you, man, there would not be a single bit of hesitation on your part. You'd get online, you'd Google it, you'd start watching YouTube videos, you'd go to the public library, you'd call friends, you'd call an attorney, you'd talk to an accountant. You would do everything in your power to make sure that you checked off every single box you needed to check off in that 24-hour period so you could get that check cut to you with no strings attached. The reason you do that is because you value a million dollars and you recognize that that's a massive pot of gold at the end of that rainbow. And so you'd be willing to do just about anything to earn it in that 24 hour period. Well, why won't you do that with the things that matter to you? You got to look at it the same way. Your goals, the lifestyle that you want to live, that's that million dollars. That's that pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And you need to start approaching it like that. It has that value. It should have more than that value to you because a million dollars is nothing. All you have to do is be willing to invest the time to learn the things you don't know. So not knowing how to do something is a lame excuse, man. That's like one of the worst excuses because you can always learn something. I think in my experience, one of the biggest fears that I've ever seen, maybe the top of the list is a fear of failure. And failure in my view is awesome, man. It's a good thing. You want to make mistakes because you grow from those mistakes. People who don't ever make mistakes never succeed. You're never going to find somebody who's at the top of their game and whatever that is, and you're going to have a conversation with them and they're going to say, oh, I've never failed once, not even one time, not a single time in my life. That is just not a fact. 
everybody who succeeds in the things they want to accomplish has done it wrong once or twice or 9,000 times. And that's perfectly acceptable as long as you're failing forward, as long as you're landing on your feet and trying it again, as long as you don't get emotionally or mentally crushed by that failure. The people who fail in life and continue to fail in life over and over again and never learn from that failure, those are the people that suffer. But a little bit of failure and suffering is a good thing. It teaches you a whole hell of a lot about yourself and about the thing you're trying to accomplish. But heck, man, there's people out there that won't even try because they're afraid of failing in the first place. So they won't even try. They won't even find out if they were going to fail. If you never try, you never know if you're going to succeed or you're going to fail at that particular thing. So you've got to actually go for it. You've got to get off the couch and make an attempt. And then if you do mess it up, if you do screw it up, ah, good for you. No problem. Use it as an opportunity to learn, regroup, try it again. Now, once you've gone over that thing and you've been really honest with yourself and you've asked yourself why you've not accomplished that particular thing, why that hasn't taken place, whatever that is on that list where you've narrowed it down to that one thing, once you've been really honest with yourself and you understand why you think you haven't done it, then it's not too hard to make changes. Discovering what the problem is is one of the most important elements to being able to actually overcome whatever that problem is. If you don't know what your problem is, if you don't know what's keeping you back, if you don't know what's holding you down, then you can't make changes that allow you to get past it. In the medical model, you don't look at the symptoms other than using them as identifiers. What you do is you use the symptoms to figure out what the problem is, and then you solve the problem. You don't just treat symptoms. Those are ancillary. See, you not accomplishing your goal is a symptom. When you find out what the problem is, you can then take steps directly to make a change. Step four. Reframing has been a really neat part of my growth over the years. A good example of it's like this. If you take a photograph or a painting and you put that up on the wall by itself, it has a particular feel to it. But if you then buy a really nice frame, I mean, absolutely gorgeous, whatever in your mind a gorgeous frame is, and you put that photograph or that painting or that drawing inside of that frame, it gives you a completely different feeling. Life is a lot like that. See, I was talking about failure earlier. If you look at failure as a bad thing, if you look at suffering as always being a bad thing, then it's hard for you to grow out of that. It's hard for you to take that opportunity and turn it into something good. However, if you learn to reframe it, then you'll be shocked at how positive it can be to your growth, how much it can make a difference in allowing you to be much more successful. When I was younger, when I was sort of first putting this stuff into practice and learning how to apply it to my life, I was pretty much the, you know, life is a glass that is half empty all the time. You know, I was a bit of a pessimist. I grew up in a negative household, and so that's just sort of how I modeled my life too. As I grew, as I became more mature, as I focused more on positive things, I started to become more of a the glass is half full kind of guy, more of an optimist than a pessimist. Now, I'm a realist by definition, I think, but I'm a realist that leans more towards the optimism side. I believe in working towards ideals through the reality of the current circumstance. I mean, let's be honest, you know, I could have this dream of being an NBA player that can slam dunk like Jordan. However, I'm not really that tall. So the reality of the circumstance says I don't really have the capability to dunk given my physical stature, but I could own the team. So this step is all about reframing. It's all about learning to rewire your brain so that you're able to develop the courage to overcome the obstacles or fears that prevent you from going where you want to go. Of course, I'd be full of crap or I'd be lying to you if I told you that reframing is an easy thing to do. It's not. It takes practice. It's like anything. You have to do it every single time. Every time a thought hits the threshold of your mind, you have to recapture it and reframe it. 
I'll give an example of what I mean by that. All right, so you know what a threshold is. At the beginning of a home, as you go to the door and you open up the door, that's the threshold. I made a reference to Dr. Bill Gillen before, and there's a story that he and his wife are telling at a seminar once. And I just love it. It really does help you understand this concept. Well, anyways, Annabelle, his wife, says, I'm cooking dinner there one day inside the kitchen, and I yell for Bill and the boys to come in. Supper's ready. And she doesn't hear anything. So she yells again, supper's ready, and doesn't hear anything. Yells it again, and then she hears the front door. And so she goes out expecting to see Bill and the boys. And of course, it's not. It's this guy. She's like, well, who are you? And he's like, I'm your Kirby vacuum cleaner salesman. <laughs> and she's like, well, what are you doing in my house? And he says, oh, well, I, I knocked on the door and I heard somebody come in. So I did. Well, she says that it took her and Bill about 15 minutes or so to get him out of the house. He just wouldn't take no for an answer. So apply that to how you think every day. So when a thought hits you, immediately hold it hostage and examine it or test it against the decided behavior you want to develop. In other words, if you want to be a positive person and a thought hits you that's negative, hold it hostage and then reject it. Consciously, actively, every thought. Reframing is about developing new habits and developing that positive attitude, developing the ability to overcome obstacles and negativity and things that get in the way is a skill. It's an active choice that you make every single time a thought enters your mind that even remotely, even the slightest little bit is counterproductive to the new concept of who you are who you want to be, and how you want to behave. In addition to capturing and holding hostage each thought, you want to have a well-thought-out plan that allows you to analyze situations that might have derailed your plans or kept you from going after the goals that you want to go after. I have friends that keep thought journals. They basically write down everything they do and how they respond to the things that happen in their life. One of the easiest ways to do that is to keep a small notepad in your pocket or in your bag so it's available to you anytime you want. I know people who use their phone. For me, it doesn't work. I don't like the phone. I don't like to record like that. I prefer to write things down and visualize it. But it may work for you. So anytime you have a negative thought, write it down in your journal. And this immediately stops you from thinking negatively all the time. In fact, it almost instantaneously neutralizes that negative thought. Eventually, it'll really help you start to develop a new way of thinking. There's another technique that may work for you called the rubber band technique. And basically, it works like this. You put a rubber band that's slightly loose fitting around your wrist. And anytime you have a negative thought or a thought that is not in line with the way you want to be thinking, you pull the rubber band back and you slap it against your wrist. It's a bit of negative reinforcement. But trust me, there are people that stand by it and say that it absolutely has helped them change their behavior. The way that I learned to deal with these kind of obstacles or fears was just to go after it and do it. Just to set my mind to it no matter the cost, and accept the consequences. For example, I used to be afraid of heights. I now can jump out of a plane and not even think twice about it. I used to be afraid of the open water. In particular, you know, I grew up when Jaws became real famous, and it sort of freaked me out anytime I went around in the ocean. I'm no longer afraid of that. I've actually scuba dived while I was around sharks. I'm cautious of sharks. Don't get me wrong. I'm not stupid. I don't like to lay on a surfboard in a wetsuit so I can look like a seal you know, I don't want to be a tasty snack for some shark that decides I really didn't taste that good and spits me back out. But I've learned to overcome that fear by becoming a certified scuba diver. For me, that's the most direct method is to just do it. Living in your comfort zone really isn't always the best idea. Quite often, if you run from your fears, they become more ingrained and more likely to hold you back in the future. The truth is there's really no one size fits all solution. So step four is really about finding the best solution for you. Ultimately, you have to discover what the problem was in the first place. And now it's your opportunity to go out and look for a solution. I've given you a couple of good examples. In my opinion, reframing is one of the most productive ways to do it. You may want to consider hypnosis. You might want to consider NLP. 
When I was younger, I found NLP or neuro-linguistic programming to be quite beneficial. If you've got a specific obstacle or a fear that might be keeping you from accomplishing your goals, go get books on it and read about it. But at the end of the day, if you try all these things and none of them work for you, my suggestion is that you find somebody who can work with you on a daily basis, help keep you accountable, know the problems you're going through, help you find solutions. Somebody like a life coach, a counselor, a psychotherapist, a pastor, or a mentor, or somebody who will work with you regularly to help you get where you want to get from A to B, B to C, C to D, until you finally reach the goals that you want. And that's where I think I'm going to end it for today. Listen, I'm really, really grateful that you've taken the time to listen to what I have to share. And I appreciate you being patient with me as I work my way through this and I start to iron out the kinks, if you will. We've got a lot more in store for you. And I truly am really excited with the opportunity. So if you found this useful for you today and you haven't subscribed already, please do subscribe and share it with people you care about who you think might be able to benefit from this podcast as well. Until next time, keep your head up, stay focused, stay disciplined, and treat others the way you want to be treated. Because that, my friends, is the key to real success. Thanks for listening to Head Change with author, speaker, and hero award-winning humanitarian James L. Clark. Please visit jameslclark.com for more resources and follow James at twitter.com slash jameslclark. Ready for a change? Want to implement a fail-safe system to ensure you reach your goals? Join James today on a life-changing journey. Through his mentoring program, you'll learn how to live intentionally, develop a plan for personal growth, and design your new lifestyle. Visit jameslclark.com or call toll-free 1-877-JL-CLARK. That's 1-877-552-5275.